Welcome to What's at Stake, a Penta podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Buck, joined today by my colleague, Michael LaRosa. And today we're also excited to welcome Cody Keenan to the show. Cody served as chief speechwriter for President Barack Obama, an experience he writes about in his new book, Grace, President Obama and 10 Days in the Battle for America. Cody is now a partner at Fenway Strategies, a leading speechwriting firm, and he teaches a political speechwriting course at Northwestern University. Cody, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. So you write in your book about this incredibly dramatic 10 days in the Obama presidency when you were chief speechwriter, from the shooting in Charleston, South Carolina, to the Supreme Court rulings on the Affordable Care Act and gay marriage, and President Obama's speeches about these major American changes. Uh, can you talk to us about why you chose this span of 10 days and what that was like living through this from your perspective? Sure. Yeah, two reasons. One is just the sheer magnitude of the events that happened in just 10 days. I mean, it's a story that demanded to be told. When I was telling a bunch of friends that I was writing the book and listed off all those events, not just the ones you mentioned, but there are a whole bunch more that just randomly happened that week. They said, dude, my God, I remember all those. I just didn't remember that they were the same week. But more importantly, it's what these events, why these events matter. Every single one of them went straight to the heart of who we are as a country and whether or not we believe that we're all created equal. Whether, you know, are we going to stand up to white supremacy? You know, are we going to continue to allow black Americans to be targeted because of the color of their skin or have to walk past a Confederate flag every day on the way to work? Do we care that people who work one or two jobs have access to affordable health insurance? You know, whether or not gay Americans are allowed to get married like the rest of us or whether they're going to be second-class citizens. I mean, all of these questions came to the fore in the same week and we had to write speeches for all of them, you know, which was exhausting, but also exhilarating. And by the end of the week, we, we'd answered all these questions as a country in the right way. You know, it was just an amazing little burst of progress, but the story of America is a story of bursts of progress and backlash to that progress. And we're living through that backlash now, but, but just to, to write about this and how we got there and the decades of effort that went into those victories is something I think it's very important to pe for people to remember and hang on to. So what is it like as a speechwriter under this incredible pressure, time constraints, the pressure of the country watching and waiting for the president to speak on these issues? How do you handle that? And then put that pressure to one side and write a speech that not only rises to the moment, but captures this beautifully for history? A couple things. One, you rely on an incredible team that you have around you. And I had, I had this amazing team of speechwriters. My wife was one of my fact checkers, and I, I leaned on her the entire time. Uh, but most importantly, I leaned on the boss. You know, I, I wish I could say I just, I just sat down and banged out an amazing speech, but he really did a lot of work rewriting that eulogy the night before. And that's one of the reasons why it was, it was, it was so great and terrible to work for him. You know, it, it was terrible because we would just kill ourselves to get him a first draft he'd be happy with, but it was great because he could be there to take it to a higher place if we fell short of the mark. I want to bring you and Michael on this because Michael worked as press secretary for first lady Jill Biden before joining us at Penta and the Bidens of course have been known over the years for speaking to these moments of grief as well. Michael, do you want to um, talk to Cody a little bit about this? Sure. Well, yeah, it's no secret. I think that President Biden, when he was on the campaign and now in the White House, communicates really openly about his grief and 
tragedy in his own personal life. And President Obama, uh, when he like during his presidency, I, he was known as like this healer in chief, and because he was really just incredible and inspirational and rising to the moment during so many unfortunately disturbing tragedies, whether it's Newtown or Aurora or Charleston. And I guess I was wondering if you could talk about sort of what it's like to work with the president on these really emotional subjects. And we saw President Obama come out after the day of Newtown and sort of shed a little bit of a tear. It wasn't often that he emoted that way, but to work on some of these speeches where his own humanity needed to come through in order for everybody else to understand the magnitude of the moment so he could show that he did as well. I was wondering if you could just talk about what that what that's like to work with the president on these really disturbing moments in history. Um, and I'm and also second secondly, while while we're on the subject, I think in that same month, uh, Bo Biden died and the president delivered the eulogy at his funeral. And I know that's a reoccurring theme in in the Biden's life, obviously, because it's, you know, their son. And uh, it was an incredibly difficult and still is a difficult subject for them and that the president speaks about. So I was wondering if you could talk about those things. Yeah, of course. I, you know, first of all, Obama and Biden have completely different strengths. Like you you mentioned, President Biden, just you just know uh, he can connect with people who are suffering. And that's it just comes out of his own experience. He doesn't have to he doesn't have to try to convince people that that he gets it. Obama approached these eulogies differently. You know, I'm glad you mentioned that that he he cried on the day of Newtown. Like I think most Americans did. That's not something planned. You don't write into a speech, sir, cry here. Uh, in fact, he cut he cut a paragraph out of that statement because he thought it would be too raw and he wouldn't be able to get through it. And uh, he still couldn't. And I, but I think it says something that you know for for the next that was God that was ten years ago now almost. But for for the next six years in the White House. That video of him crying, giving the Newtown statement was the second most viewed YouTube on the White House YouTube channel right after the night uh, he announced the death of bin Laden. And I think that's just because people actually want to see in their leaders that they that they feel the same way as we do. You know, it's you know, you'd get like the far right making fun of him for it. But that's absurd. You know, who, who didn't feel terrible that day? It was the darkest day in the White House. But in writing these eulogies, he always wanted to do something different. He he. You want to memorialize the victim first and then share something about their life. But then you want to turn that into something bigger. And you want to remind people or share with people, what are our obligations now that this person is gone? What are our responsibilities to carry on in their stead? And and that took on a different form with each eulogy. The Bo, it's, I love that you mentioned the Bo Biden one. I mean, that was one of the saddest uh, to write because it just felt like, a big part of our future was being taken away from us because Bo was just this rising star who everybody adored. But it's also, and there's no good way to say this, it's one of my favorite pieces of writing. Like I, Obama and I really poured ourselves into that eulogy. And I think, you know, I, I almost dare people to, to read that without getting choked up. And yeah, that was only, I think it was like two weeks before um, the events in this book. So we were fresh off that and the White House was already a pretty emotional place when this book started happening. Yeah, the Bidens, I think, were happened to be in South Carolina still in mourning when that happened. And I know it was incredibly difficult for the first lady to go to another funeral so, so soon, like in the middle of their own 
morning in, in Kiowa, but um, it was such a, a tragedy nationally that really affected everybody. And I think they, they felt like they had to be there. And South Carolina, as you know, is a special place for them. Um, and thank you for sharing that. And while we're not to bring in politics into this at all, but when we were talking about President Obama and um, shedding that tear and sort of showing yeah, that it's you can't direct a president to to just be emotional like that. And it just it's a, it's a natural thing. Um, the other night, uh, John Fetterman in the Senate debate really showed his own vulnerabilities and came under mockery in some ways and some some in the media on the right. And, but do you, do you think there is um, when politicians show their humanity and their vulnerabilities, do you think that is uh, how do you think people view that voters or the American people? Do you think it's a strength or a weakness when it comes to like maybe even voting behavior or public sentiment? Um, not that it's a tactic, but it's a, a natural human sort of behavior. It's absolutely a strength. I mean, we should want our leaders to be more like us. The the Fetterman thing makes me furious because this is a man who just had a stroke for crying out loud, and he's actually working through it as he's getting better. Come January, John Fetterman will be fine. Dr. Oz will not, <laughs> you know, and, and that's the way people should be looking at this. It, it, the media coverage of it just makes me absolutely furious. Like it's, it's to the point where it, they don't even cover what was in the debate, just how how he came across. And what I think what he's doing is really, really brave. Yeah. And, and just to be honest and fair for our viewers, you know, it's a, a condition, a stroke that, that Republican members of Congress have suffered as well. And we saw Mark Kirk um, was able to perform his job, but took a year off to to recover, um, but was able to perform his job as a as a senator. And so this is not a, a partisan thing. It's more of a human observation that I that I was making. Anyway, a, a huge, just an enormous number of Americans have some form of disability. And for people to be mocking that or suggesting that he can't get the job done is a slap in the face to a lot of people. Cody, I'd like to go back for a second to your work in the White House and your process as a speechwriter. Can you take us through, um, for those of us, unlike Michael, who haven't worked in the White House and you, uh, what is the process when you have one of these major speeches? For the president to deliver, does the process start with you? Does the president take a first pass? Walk us through what this looks like and how you power through when maybe the muse is not striking. The most important thing is to get some time with him on the front end, and I would, I would beg, bargain, cajole, even just burst into the Oval Office to get it, um, especially for these big speeches. Because without that, we're just we're not guessing at what he wants to say because we have a good idea by that point. But but you're. You're wasting a little bit of time if you just start writing without hearing from him first. Um, I opened the book outside the 10 days with a, with a prologue of, of how we wrote the Selma speech together. And I was lucky enough that two days before the Selma speech was a snow day, you know, so the whole government shuts down. Nobody comes to work. I did. I burst in there because I knew his meetings would be pulled down and I could grab him all day long and we could pass five drafts back and forth in one day, each one getting better than the last. That was that was special and unique and rare. Um, but generally, you know, we try to get some time with him on the front end, but then I'd sit down with my team of writers and we'd, we'd sort of ask each other, you know, what's the story we're trying to tell here? We'd bounce ideas off each other. And then it's sort of a solitary exercise. You know, you just sit down by yourself for a while and write until you feel like you have something that's ready to share with the team. And we'd all edit each other's work, try to make each other better before we ultimately sent a draft on to the president. 
To what extent were you fielding during these major speeches, these major moments, were you getting inputs from other parts of the White House, from legal communications? Were you having to sort through a bunch of different opinions and then form that into some sort of cohesive speech? Or were you able to operate in a little bit of a vacuum when you actually got down to writing? Oh, there were a lot of cooks in the kitchen, you know, especially for something like the State of the Union address was just out of control. Um, people would people would stake out the West Wing bathroom, like hoping to catch me on the way. Or the more impressive technique was uh, one morning I walked back in and there was a bottle of bourbon on my desk with a handwritten note that said, don't forget the Department of Education. And uh, I emailed I emailed Secretary Duncan and said, now that is a more effective way to do this. But yeah, for, for big speeches, especially everybody has their their own ideas and their own bailiwicks and the things they want to put in there. And you just need to while we always appreciated it, you need to make sure that it contributes to the story you're trying to tell. It doesn't distract from it. You know, there were a lot of speeches that we called Christmas trees where everybody just put, wants to put their own ornament on there. So, you know, your task as a speechwriter is to make sure that a speech is, tells, tells a good story, that it's memorable, that it's sticky. It's something that people will take home with them. Kind of too many different things thrown into it distract from that. So we, we would have to very nicely say uh, that might not work in this speech, but it'll work in the next. But there are also plenty of times people submitted ideas that where it's like, you know what, this does make the speech better. Thank you. So the inverse of that sort of in politics, when you're giving these speeches, you're having to talk to so many different groups at once, all these external t- stakeholders. How do you manage to write a speech that speaks to all of these people at the same time, but doesn't get so diluted? that it doesn't say anything at all? It's a great question. And you, all, you also just kind of answered it too. Like if you if you do make sure to address every single audience or if you make a speech a box checking exercise, it doesn't say anything at all. What was helpful for us is that whenever the president of the United States speaks, you know, the entire world is the audience. So you, you can't get trapped in just writing for the people in the room uh, because you know that the world is watching. You know that somebody could, can tweet out a clip at any moment. But... It is really important when you first sit down and start writing a speech to think about who your audience is. Yes, you have the audience in the room. And yes, to an extent, your remarks are going to be tailored for them. But you always want to make sure that what you're saying, what the story is you're telling is something that has some sort of universal appeal to everybody. You know, if if there's someone watching on TV somewhere else, they'll be able to see something that applies to them in this speech, too. You know, so you you, you always and this this can go for you know any leader who is not going to be on national television. There's always hot mics. Every single one of us has a, a live studio in our pocket that can be recording at any given moment. So you are never um, purely just speaking to the people in the room. Always try to think of a way to expand what you're saying to, to make other people see something of themselves in it. We'll take a pause there. Um, and then we will come back after this break. Cody, I'm so excited. We have so many more questions for you. Penta is the world's first comprehensive stakeholder solutions firm. We are a one-stop shop for the intelligence and strategy leaders need to assess a company's reputation and make decisions that improve their positioning. As executives in the C-suite must account for a growing set of engaged stakeholders, all with distinct, fast-changing demands, Penta provides real-time intelligence and strategy solutions. We work with clients solving complex global challenges across a variety of industries. Our clients span technology, financial services, energy, healthcare, and more. To learn more about how Penta can support your company, check out our website at pentagroup.co, our Twitter at pentagrp, or find us on LinkedIn at Penta Group. 
What I wanted to ask you about was sort of substance versus performance in speech, speech making, but also speech delivery and sort of how that exists today in the media environment we, we currently live in. What's more important, sort of performance or substance in a speech? They're equally important to speech giving. And, you know, one of the one of the great things about Barack Obama is he was skilled at both of them, uh, mm-hmm. at, at the writing and at the performance. You can have one without the other, but then it's just a temporary sugar high. You know, everybody always asks, well, you know, Trump was so good at getting attention for himself. Fine. But but to what end? Right. You know, he only passed one significant piece of legislation and it was an enormous tax cut for billionaires and corporations. He didn't win re-election. You know, he was he was he was able to insert himself into into the public conversation every day. But to what end? You know, a, a speech is something that should tell a story. A speech is something that should give us something to strive for and reach for. And Obama viewed each speech not as a standalone exercise, but as they all fit together into sort of the longer narrative arc of the presidency and the longer narrative arc of the country. You know, it'd be, it's where you fit into this continuum of democracy. And when people ask, you know, like, oh, do speeches still matter? I mean, yeah, a, a really good example of that actually is Trump. I mean, none of his speeches are going to live in the public memory if they even do now. But his words unleashed something primal in this country. This His words created a permission structure for political violence and for, for some of the people's baser instincts to come out. Whereas Obama's kept the lid on it for the most part, or, or at least try to inspire people to be better. So do you think to that end that we could see another orator in the White House on the level of President Obama, someone who really does care so deeply about speech writing and delivering speeches? Yes, I, I, I teach a class on speech writing now at Northwestern University. So each year I'm sending a little army of speech writers out in the world who will, who will bring that back. But I think it, it actually an important point there is that we're not always going to have charismatic leaders. We're not always going to have people who are great orators, and that's got to be okay with us. We can't decide whether to vote or not based on whether somebody excites us. You know, we still need to go out and do it in every single election. It's not what you ask, but it's just something that that grates on me when people complain, oh, nobody excites me. Well, get yourself excited about democracy. Pick an issue that you care about and, and go vote until you get what you want. So I would love to know more about your personal journey to speech writing. You describe it in the book as sort of the best and worst job in the West Wing being the chief speechwriter for the president. Um, how did you end up there? A lot of hard work, a little bit of privilege, uh, just a big mix. I mean, there's, there's, there's no reason that I should have been chief speechwriter in the White House 10 years after graduating from college. So yes, it's a lot of hard work. I mean, it's not like we're digging ditches or anything, but it's a lot of late nights for little pay and weekends of effort. The luck is that uh, I had a, John Favreau and I shared a mentor in, in a woman named Stephanie Cutter, who uh, is a brilliant Democratic strategist, and she introduced the two of us early in the campaign. And then the fact that I had parents who could help me out with the rent when I was first starting out as an unpaid intern in Congress. I mean, that's a big deal that that already eliminates a lot of people from politics who should be in it. Um, so just it's it's that kind of mixture of luck, hard work, and, and privilege that that got me there early. But I worked for I worked for Ted Kennedy for four years in the Senate after college. I first started writing some speeches for him in 2005 and 2006. I was fortunate enough to be on the floor in Boston when President Obama, State Senator Obama, 
gave the speech that made him famous. And that's really what turned me on to speech writing uh, and made me excited about it. So what do you tell your students who are hoping to work in speech writing and politics today? Is it different advice than you were getting when you were getting started in this field? Uh, it, 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 I'm basically just giving them the cheat codes. I'm telling them what, I, what nobody told me when I was their age. And it's that you're getting that first job in politics can be difficult, especially if you want to be a speechwriter. There's a catch-22 that, you know, you go in to, to try to be a speechwriter and they say, well, show me the speeches you've written. Well, I haven't written any, but I haven't written any because nobody will hire me. So I am I'm equipping my students with a portfolio of 10 speeches they can show by the time they, they get to the door. But my main advice is just go do it. Show up and dive in and don't worry about that first job. They're also twisted into knots over making sure the first job is perfect as if it will determine the entire arc of their career. And it won't. You know, and and I did that too when when I first started out, and <clears throat> got lucky that the the one I landed was with Ted Kennedy. But your first job should really be your best learning experience, even if you are like I was, just walking dogs, getting people lunch, running memos around the hill. If you keep your eyes open, you can learn all sorts of amazing stuff about how policy is made, how a speech is put together, how a communication strategy is is planned and laid out. So always keep your eyes open and learn and and the rest of your career trajectory is up to you. It's not your first job is going to determine it. I would love to know how you as such, you know, in your 20s and 30s, writing speeches for Obama as a candidate and then as president, faced that pressure of having Obama, Barack Obama, as your boss and your editor, really. I can't imagine a more intimidating editor, editor than Barack Obama when it comes to speech writing. Um, how did you manage that pressure? Not well. I mean, <laughs> I, was a, I was a mess. I was a mess. Because um, I, I never grew fully comfortable with being his speechwriter. You know, like you mentioned before, I wrote that it's the best and worst job in the West Wing. I mean, it's just it's an it's an incredible job and honor and opportunity. But we were always twisted into pretzels of self-doubt and self-loathing, trying to impress him with every draft. And the way I got through was by by leaning on everybody else. I mean, Michael knows this. We we had this extraordinary staff and, and team and and just it was a really collegial place to work. And we all it sounds you know it sounds so mockable like I'm just drinking the Kool-Aid, but we all loved each other. We would go to we'd go to each other's weddings. We'd go to funerals um for, for when people's parents passed away. Uh, a bunch of us lived together. You know, I lived with two coworkers and then my my fiance moved in with us. So that's how I got through. Um, with everybody else. And, you know, I had a windowless office, so vitamin D from the White House doctors helped, but we would just lean on each other to to get through it. And and the boss, of course, was someone who was always generous with his time and his edits. If we didn't hit the mark on a speech, he he wouldn't just, he wouldn't throw it back at us or say, you failed or go do better. He would actually sit down and walk us through what he wanted uh, and why, which is a pretty extraordinary thing for any boss to do, let alone one who runs the free world. What was, I mean, I tell people my favorite part about working in the White House was just as somebody as a political junkie since I was very little, just the amount of how rich the building is with history and just drive. I drove in driving in every day and just realizing that my parking spot look is outside of this building, this building that I've looked up to and revered since I was probably five or six years old. And, and every day, whether it was walking to the mess or walking, you know, just in the house or 
even on the worst days, I think I felt like I appreciated the history that existed there and that um, it will be the most unique work environment I would ever ever working in my life. But I was wondering what it was like for you when you first walked into the building and how you handled the pressures of the history that took place there when when you worked there. Did you appreciate it? Or the first time you walked into the Oval Office, what went over you? Yeah, I mean, I my first day was January 21st, 2009, the day after Inauguration Day. And, and when you walk up to the gate and give them your ID for the first time, because you don't have a badge, you just assume that someone's playing a prank on you. And they're going to say, you're not on the list. But then they let you in, which is terrifying. <laughs> you're like, oh, my God, I'm here now. Yeah, we didn't really have time to be aware of the history. I'm so glad you asked this question. I mean, the you know the economy was in full meltdown when we walked in. 800,000 people were losing their jobs a month, and he, he had to clean up the mess immediately. So you're, you're suddenly just sitting in the Oval Office out of the blue and reminding yourself, pinching yourself, you're like, Hey, pay attention. You know, this, even though it's amazing to be in the Oval Office right now, and you think of all the history that's occurred in there, if you're not listening to what Tim Geithner is saying about housing policy, you can't write this speech. And so it, it was, it was really pretty amazing. The first time I met President Obama was actually in the Oval Office. Even though I joined the campaign in early 2007, he was only in Chicago a couple of times because mm-hmm. he was always out campaigning. And as a junior speechwriter, I wasn't in the, the meetings he'd be in. So the first time I met him was in the Oval Office, which is totally terrifying. You walk in there and like all the saliva just drains out of your mouth, you know, and then your your heart starts pounding and it's the best home court advantage in the world. Where where were your what was your favorite and least favorite place to physically write your speeches? <laughs> Honestly, my least favorite place was my office because it was it was this windowless office underneath the Oval Office. And it was just kind of drab and yellow. I, I was know in there. It. Yeah, I was in there a few weeks ago, and it's actually been remodeled and repainted, and it's really nice now. But there's still no windows. Yeah, I loved I loved writing in in the in the executive office building library on the top floor. There were all sorts of cool nooks and crannies you could go sit in and write, and they had no BlackBerry reception, so people couldn't find you. Yeah, it's a beautiful um, it's a beautiful space. I've I've taken books out of there when we were doing you know getting the first lady together with historians and getting together all these books on first ladies, and uh, it's just an incredible. Uh, just beautiful place in the building. Absolutely. And and once once tours were over for the day, I'd usually go over, because I, I got to know all the Secret Service agents at that point. I'd go sit sometimes in the red room or the green room mm-hmm. and just write it when nothing was going on. Wow, that's great. And the last question I have for you, Cody, is uh, given the pressures, did you, can you talk about a mistake that you've made, that you made during this time or, you know, maybe psyched you out or like, how did you pick yourself back up from a mistake that you made in a speech that he delivered? It, it was really rare that that happened, and that has nothing that has nothing to do with me. It's because no, I know. by the time by the time a draft got to him, it had gone through my whole team. It had gone through our fact checkers, uh, one of whom I married. It had gone through the policy teams, the legal teams, the uh, comms team. I think by the time he saw a draft, about a hundred people had seen it. Mm-hmm. So, I, I, I'm sure there are times I've screwed up. I can't find one right now. Uh, actually. The Charleston eulogy, which I write about in the book, there were there were nine victims, obviously the Charleston nine, including the pastor. But I had written in in one of the sentences, you know, the eight victims, because just I was tired and he was eulogizing the pastor and I meant the eight others. And one of the fact checkers, not my wife, emailed during the speech, say like, oh, my God, it says there were only eight victims. People understood and nobody ever flagged that as a problem. But but that's like an example of, of just something you quickly get wrong, even when you don't necessarily when it's not really wrong. Yeah. Yep. I know. I I get those moments. I I can imagine what that felt like. 
Well, Cody, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. It's been such an interesting conversation. We've really enjoyed having you on the podcast. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. And thanks for listening to this edition of What's at Stake, a Penta podcast. Tune in next week and visit us at pentagroup.co for more. 